Did you know that mRNA vaccines are approved for use in pigs in the United States? Not to mention 85% of the beef sold in your local grocery store is imported. In fact, over 5 billion pounds of meat was imported just last year. There's so much mystery surrounding our meat, which is why I'm so grateful for my Good Rancher subscription. I know that I don't have to worry about imported meat or unknown vaccines in the food that I feed my family. Good Ranchers is saying mRNO to mRNA by offering a free 10-pound Easter ham with any subscription. Unlike the pork from the grocery store, Good Ranchers ham is guaranteed 100% free from mRNA vaccines. This is a $119 value, absolutely free with code DAILYWIRE. Go to GoodRanchers.com and say mRNO to mRNA by subscribing today. You have a right to know exactly what's in your food, and Good Ranchers is dedicated to protecting that right and providing your family with the best meat in America, free from any unknown and potentially harmful additives. Go to GoodRanchers.com and subscribe to any of their boxes and use code DAILYWIRE at checkout. Every subscription will come with a free Heritage Ham, $25 off, and Good Ranchers lifetime quality commitment. That's GoodRanchers.com, code DAILYWIRE. Today on the Matt Wall Show, the murder of an Antifa activist in Brooklyn this week has exposed some very ugly things about leftism. We'll discuss that. Also, a bunch of men claiming to be non-binary invaded a tech conference for women. NBC News demands answers from a GOP congressman whose distant ancestors owned slaves. And an actress comes out to tell her abortion story, but reveals more than she intended to in the process. All of that and more today on the Matt Wall Show. People always say, happy dog, happy life. Well, I always say, I say it all the time. It's the mantra I live by. And if that's really the case, you need to be giving your dog Rough Greens. Naturopathic Dr. Dennis Black, the founder of Rough Greens, is dedicated to improving the health of every dog in America. Before I started feeding my dog Rough Greens, I had no idea that dog food is dead food. It contains very little nutritional value. Think about it. Nutrition isn't brown, it's green. Well, let Rough Greens Bring your dog's food back to life. Rough Greens is a supplement that contains all the necessary vitamins, minerals, probiotics, omega oils, digestive enzymes, and antioxidants that your dog needs. You don't have to go out and buy new dog food. You just sprinkle Rough Greens on their food every day. Dog owners everywhere are raving about Rough Greens. It supports healthy joints, improves bad breath, boosts energy levels, and so much more. We are what we eat. And that goes for dogs, too. Naturopathic Dr. Dennis Black is so confident Rough Greens will improve your dog's health. He's offering my listeners a free Jumpstart trial bag so your dog can try it. A free Jumpstart trial bag can be at your door in just a few business days. Go to roughgreens.com slash Matt or call 844-ROUGH-700. That's R-U-F-F-Greens.com slash Matt or call 844-ROUGH-700 today. The other day, I talked uh, briefly about the murder of someone named Ryan Carson. He's the 32-year-old Antifa activist who was stabbed to death around 4 a.m. in Brooklyn on Monday. And I said that, among other things, his killing shows the importance of, of knowing your surroundings and taking proactive steps to protect yourself and your family. Now, leftists can call that whatever they want to call it, stereotyping, racial profiling, white supremacy, whatever. The truth is, but it's common sense to get out of a situation when you assess that you are unsafe. And if an agitated young male in a hoodie on a street corner starts kicking mopeds and ranting and raving in front of you, as Ryan Carson's killer did, then you don't stare at him. You don't uh, tell him to chill or shove him several times in the chest, especially when he says, I'll kill you. Uh, what you do is you get yourself and your loved ones as far away as you can. If somebody calls you a racist because of that, then that's their problem. Better to be alive and quote-unquote racist than dead and tolerant. 
Now, over the last 48 hours, though, it's become very clear that the murder of Ryan Carson is about much more than what Ryan Carson did or failed to do at 4 a.m. on Monday morning in Brooklyn. The response to Carson's killing from all corners of the left, from Carson's friends to local politicians to the media, doesn't simply tell us that leftists are hopelessly naive and ignorant of very real threats to their lives. It does tell us that, but it also tells us a lot more because this is a, this is a bigger story than that, it turns out. Now, the response to Ryan Carson's killing also makes it clear that leftists simply don't care about human life or humanity in general. We know that because they're not even going through the motions of demonstrating some pretense of concern for Carson, much less uh, the policies that led directly to his death. And what this means is that, is that leftism is collectivism in every sense and at every level. It views its own adherents not as people, but as replaceable, fungible cogs in the revolution. It uses its own followers as essentially cannon fodder in the culture war. One death is, uh, is irrelevant. It's collateral damage. Now, we could debate when this began or whether it's always been the case with leftism, but it, it's impossible to dispute that the left is openly admitting this now. Consider the fact that within hours of Ryan Carson's death, his left-wing friends set up a GoFundMe. And that part is not unique. You know, this happens a lot. Somebody dies, and next thing you know, there's a GoFundMe. But the thing is that they didn't create this GoFundMe to cover funeral costs or to help Carson's family. Instead, Carson's friends set up a GoFundMe for themselves so that, so that, so that they could skip work uh, in order to mourn. That's not an exaggeration. It's precisely what they wrote. Here's the pitch on their GoFundMe page. Quote, we are a collective of Ryan's close friends reeling from a brutal loss. We're asking for your help on behalf of his partner in easing the burden and stress of this horrifying situation so that we can have space and time to grieve and remember Ryan. Immediate needs are to offset the costs of working class people taking time off of work to properly mourn. So they want to take a vacation. They want vacation days uh, and, uh, and they want to be paid. They want a paid vacation and they need to crowdfund for that, crowdfunding some bereavement leave, even though they're not even related to the guy. Like forget the family, forget the funeral apparently, just pay them to sit around and, and mourn. I mean, think about this. Their friend died. This all happened this start, this Monday, early Monday morning is when he was killed. So, and the GoFundMe was up very quickly. So their friend died, I mean, brutally, horrifically, stabbed to death in the heart, bleeding to death on a sidewalk, right? And the first thing they think to do is start a GoFundMe to raise funds for themselves, which means that someone in the friend circle had to suggest this almost immediately after he died. Hey, did you hear Ryan was killed? It's, all, it's awful. You know, we should start a GoFundMe. Oh, for funeral costs? No, 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 for us. So we could take some time off work. And then everyone else apparently agreed to it. It's, it's incredible. But Ryan's comrades didn't start uh, stop there, rather. For good measure, they also told media outlets that if he were alive, Ryan would feel bad for his killer. As the Daily Mail reported, quote, Brooklyn activist Ryan Thorson Carson would feel sorry for the violent teenager who stabbed him to death and think of him as a victim of a broken system, say friends. Unfortunately, Ryan Carson could not be reached for comment on this. And although if we're being completely honest, his friends are probably right. On social media before his death, Carson celebrated violence directed at police officers. He called the torching of a Minneapolis police station, quote, really good. He cheered when Rush Limbaugh died, saying, quote, hell yeah. He also threatened an elected official, saying that he wanted to, quote, shove this little effing nerd in the locker where he belongs. 
At the same time, Carson pretended to be a compassionate person when he was talking about violent thugs and drug addicts, so we wanted to have constant state-funded access to narcotics. So the criminals who terrorize entire cities are the good guys, according to Ryan Carson. But the uh, talk radio hosts and politicians who disagree with him, on the other hand, well, they deserve to die. Now, as depraved an ideology as that is, this is what resonates on the left now. Carson's friends value that ideology more than the memory of their dead friend. They want to promote the very same policies, defunding the police, legalizing injection sites, uh, putting the mentally ill homeless back on the streets. They want, to, they want to lean into those policies that got Carson killed in the first place. And that's because they don't care about him. They care about uh, the revolution. Now, you might have heard claims on social media that Carson's girlfriend, who was uh, with him when he was killed, Claudia, there have been reports on social media that she was not cooperative with police in the hours after her boyfriend's death. And we can't confirm that, so I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, certainly, if it's true, it would be in keeping with Claudia's social media posts where she says that all cops are bastards. But here's what we do know. According to the New York Daily News, Claudia somehow mispicked, quote-unquote, mispicked her boyfriend's killer in a lineup. And she's the only eyewitness to the crime. She saw it happen right in front of her from just a few feet away. But she reportedly misidentified the person who did it. Now, without seeing all the people in the lineup, it's hard to make anything out of that. Eyewitnesses are also notoriously unreliable. But it is another interesting detail to note, all the same. Politicians in New York uh, don't appear to be interested in getting to the bottom of any of this um, or making sure that these sort of things don't happen again. Like Carson's friends, they're motivated solely by ideology. So take a look at so-called tributes to Ryan Carson from New York State Senator Julia Salazar or public advocate Jumaine Williams or council member Sandy Nurse or state Senator Jabari Brisport or state representative Emily Gallagher. In all of these tributes that have been pouring in, none of them talk exactly about how Carson died uh, or anything like that. Instead, they all mindlessly tell people to continue practicing his brand of left-wing activism. Salazar, for example, eulogized Carson by talking about the importance of humane drug policy. Williams went on about the need for environmental justice. They're skipping over any form of self-reflection about why Ryan Carson is dead in favor of repeating their talking points. It's like callous and craven doesn't even begin to describe this. Of course, wherever there's callous and craven behavior, there's also the corporate media. And they've also been uh, working overtime to obscure as many facts as possible about this Antifa foot soldier's unfortunate demise. In the hours after Carson's murder, several outlets, including the New York Daily News and the New York Post, refused to provide any kind of description for the suspect, even though we could see it on security camera footage, so we all knew some of the basic details of his, of his uh, physical description. The New York Daily News, for example, called the killer a, quote, unhinged stranger. The article later describes the murder as a belligerent stranger. But there's no mention of any kind of description, even though the article cites police sources who have clearly seen the surveillance footage showing the murder. So this is deliberate. Either the police or the media or Carson's girlfriend decided to hide some of the information. There's no getting around that. And as, as, as incredible as that is, it gets worse. Somehow, in a development that's unprecedented in New York's storied history of perp walks, this cover-up continued even after police arrested Carson's alleged killer. Yesterday, when police arrested uh, the suspect, who allegedly stabbed Carson to death on the street, CBS News made the editorial decision to blur the alleged killer's face. They deliberately hid his identity. 
Watch, watch this. This is footage of the man police say they were looking for. He has not yet been identified, but we are blurring his face at the moment while charges are pending. Uh, we watched again as all of this went down. More than a dozen officers were around when it happened before entering a home here on Lafayette Avenue. I mean, it, it's amazing. Like, like, to be perfectly clear, the suspect that police arrested is an 18-year-old adult by the name of Brian Dowling. There is no conceivable reason to blur his face in this context. The excuse from CBS, which appears to be, well, this adult murder suspect uh, hasn't been formally charged yet, so therefore you don't get to see his face. This has never been used by any major media outlet in the history of this country, as far as we can tell. It's never been used by CBS. Thousands of times they have put footage of people getting arrested on TV, and they have never blurred the face. They certainly didn't do that with Daniel Penny. Daniel Penny didn't kill anyone in cold blood. He's not a murderer. He saved people on a subway car from getting violently attacked. Which, which by the way, you, you remember that in that case, Jordan Neely was uh, going crazy on a subway. Daniel Penny intervened. And we're told that Jordan Neely, uh, well, he was not a threat to anyone. He wasn't, he wasn't, uh, you know, he wasn't waving a gun around. Well, you see in the case of Ryan Carson, how quickly it goes from belligerent guy screaming to stabbing someone to death. Okay, in the span of seconds, uh, uh, Brian Dowling went from screaming on a street corner to stabbing a man to death. That's how quickly that, that happens. Did Daniel Penny save people on the subway from the same fate? It's quite possible. And yet, even before... Daniel Penny was outrageously charged with any crime. News outlets had no problem putting his face everywhere before he was before he was arrested. What explains the different treatment? Well, of course, Daniel Penny is white and Brian Dowling is black. That shouldn't matter, but when corporate media makes everything about race, it's hard not to notice. And more to the point, Daniel Penny was a law-abiding citizen. He served his country in the Marines. Then he exercised his right of self-defense and his right to defend others around him. So naturally, they'll want to shame, it, shame him at every opportunity. Brian Dowling, on the other hand, he did exactly what leftists wanted him to do. If what authorities are saying is true, he contributed nothing to society. Instead, he committed a bunch of crimes, behaved like a lunatic, and terrorized everybody around him. In fact, shortly before uh, he murdered the uh, Antifa activist in Brooklyn, Dowling was, was allegedly uh, involved in other uh, kinds of incidents. Let's watch this. What we've learned about 18-year-old Brian Dowling is that there appears to have been a summons from last year for disorderly conduct, and that just a couple months ago, after Dowling was in an argument with his girlfriend at her apartment, he was breaking things, and it actually led to his aunt calling 911 and describing him as emotionally disturbed. There's a lot of uh, thoughts that maybe there's a mental health aspect to it, but certainly it is a brutal murder that happened with this man stabbed to death in front of his own girlfriend. So instead of throwing Brian Dowling in an asylum where he apparently belonged, leftist policies ensured that he uh, wouldn't spend a day in any kind of institution. The fact he, he may have killed a leftist is unfortunate in their eyes, but they don't really care. A little bit of uh, friendly fire in their view, but shouldn't distract from their agenda. Now, we've been seeing this a lot lately. The other day, I mentioned the brutal murder of a 26-year-old white left-wing tech CEO in her luxury apartment building in Baltimore. 
Uh, the CEO named Pava LaPere was an avowed leftist. She had BLM propaganda all over her social media feeds. She seemed to really harbor an irrational hatred towards white men. How did she die? Well, she let a black guy she didn't know into her apartment building, and then she got into an elevator with him. The surveillance footage shows all of this. LaPere's mangled dead body was found on the rooftop of her apartment a few days later. Now, if you were covering this story, and pretty much every news station in the Baltimore area has covered it, then you'd think you'd at least want to inform viewers of exactly how LaPere was murdered. But that's not what's happened. So here's one example of a local news coverage of LaPere's death. This is from Fox St. Louis, and I want you to notice what is not mentioned here. We have new developments surrounding the investigation into the woman who was killed inside an apartment complex near Mount Vernon. Well, city police are now saying they found the body of EcoMap CEO Pavel Lapier. Lapier inside the complex that was once the historic Congress Hotel. Investigators say there were signs of blunt force trauma. Detectives were originally called to the building after someone reported the 26-year-old missing. Police are asking anyone with information that could help solve this case to contact them. So a lot of reports are like this. They say that she was killed in her apartment building, but they don't tell you how the killer got inside. And that's a curious omission when you think about it. Because if you really cared about Pava LaPere, or even if you just cared about accuracy in journalism, you'd think that uh, maybe that would be one of the first things you mentioned. Pava LaPere let this killer into her building. She died because she was too welcoming. She was too trusting. She was too tolerant, too naive. She died because she didn't make stereotypical assumptions. Why not tell that story to the public? Now, the omission is particularly notable given recent history. It wasn't all that long ago that the media told us that unless we allow every random black guy into our apartment buildings, then we're racist and we should lose our jobs. So here's a story that you almost certainly don't remember. It's from the dark ages of 2018. And um, that year, a white woman named Hillary Thornton decided to block a black man from entering her apartment building. Hillary had cracked the door to let her dog out. Then an unknown black guy tried to enter the building. And Hillary said that, uh, she, that she, she wouldn't allow him inside. What happened next? Well, the entire national news media branded Hillary Thornton as a racist. And she was fired from her job. Watch. We are hearing the other side of a story that's making national headlines. A white woman inside a downtown loft building not letting a black man inside Friday night has hit social media and gone viral. And the woman in the video says he didn't have a key fob to get in and forced his way inside. She reached out to me to tell her side of the story after being called a racist and receiving death threats. It's an exclusive interview. You will see only on Fox 2 tonight. So you're blocking me? Into my building. Okay, and okay. it's my building as well, so I need you to get out of my way. Okay, this is the mean? viral video of Hillary Thornton trying to stop Darion Tolls from entering the Elder Shirt Lofts just off Washington in the city. Thornton wanted people to know her side of what happened. So when I noticed an individual that I did not know, my only intent was to follow the direction that I had been given by our condo association board members repeatedly, and that is to never allow access to any individual that you do not know. Thornton showed us several emails from the association stating what residents should do when dealing with a situation like this. Hillary says Dorian said he was trying to get into the building as she had the door cracked as her dog went to the bathroom. And I simply asked if he lived there. Mm -hmm. Because the direction from the condo association is so repeated, 
that if you don't know the person, you do not let them in. Thornton adds she told him she couldn't let him in, then asked if he had a key fob. That's the only indicator that any resident has that they live in that building. He would not answer me. So Hillary Thornton's life was destroyed because she did the right thing. She did what her condo association told her to do. She also did what common sense tells you to do. You got someone who you don't recognize in the building, doesn't have a key fob, won't even tell you that they live there. Don't let them in. I wouldn't. Pavla Per, on the other hand, did what the left and corporate media demanded. And now she's dead because of it. And none of the activists who gave her that horrible advice, none of the media outlets that re relentlessly attacked Hillary Thornton are acknowledging any of that. Like Ryan Carson's friends, they don't care. They're worried instead about the cultural revolution. They don't care about the innocent people who die as a result. You might have noticed that there have been uh, several other prominent examples recently of leftist uh, activists dying horrible deaths because of left-wing policies. This is becoming more and more common. And with every new tragic example, the responses from the left is always the same. It's detached, it's self-absorbed, completely focused on politics. All of them, corporate media, politicians, the foot soldiers in Brooklyn, they all want their ideology to win. That's all they care about. People do not matter to them. Human life doesn't matter to them. The higher the body count, the more forcefully they'll clamor for social justice. Every fatality is more evidence that they're right somehow. What they'll never admit is that Ryan Carson and Pavel Lepere and many more victims like them have already experienced the inevitable consequences of this suicidal, insane ideology. And precisely for that reason, no one will ever hear from them again. Now let's get to our five headlines. These days, I'm constantly traveling. Being on the road as much as I am, I don't sleep well at night. I know it's because the hotel sheets are not as comfortable as my Cozy Earth sheets at home. Cozy Earth sheets are the softest, most luxurious streets I've, sheets I've ever owned. My wife and I have their white bamboo sheets on our bed. Those bamboo sheets are temperature regulating, helping us sleep great every night. If you're a hot sleeper and your spouse is a cold sleeper, you're going to need these sheets. Cozy Earth offers an array of sizes and 11 colors to match your unique style and preferences. Their sheets are made to withstand the test of time. My Cozy Earth sheets uh, get softer and softer with every wash. Don't just take my word for it. They have over 5,000 happy customer reviews on their site. What are you waiting for? Cozy Earth offers a 100-night guarantee, so there's no harm in trying and invest today in a good night's sleep. Right now, you'll save 40% off your next purchase with promo code WALSH40 at CozyEarth.com. That's promo code WALSH40 at CozyEarth.com. From the Daily Mail, it says, female job seekers at a women in tech conference have reacted with fury after a number of men crashed the networking events, seemingly taking advantage of the acceptance of non-binary people. The scandal erupted at the Grace Hopper Celebration of Women in Computing in Orlando, Florida, uh, which is among the most lucrative job-finding conventions for young female professionals to meet major tech firms, often right out of college. This year's summit, held from September 26th to 29th, was swarmed with men also looking to land a big interview with firms including Amazon, Apple, and Google. The reason many were uh, welcomed appeared to be the women's event allowing non-binary individuals to also attend, sparking anger among women, feeling the move was a shameless attempt to take advantage of gender diversity programs. Furious attendees uh, took to social media to slam the men for gate-crashing the women's event. However, some pointed the finger at vague benchmarks for entering the summit, as men could simply identify as non-binary. So there's a lot of outrage about this uh, on the internet. It was all quite hilarious. Uh, here's a report from uh, a, an outlet called Ketchup News, which uh, shows us some of the 
some of the women who are not so pleased about this. Career conference for females in tech was taken over by male attendees. They were there just purely for the career fair. Social media clips filmed at the Grace Hopper, the world's largest gathering of women technologists, show men standing in line to meet with recruiters. This is a space for women in tech. This is one of those few limited resources that isn't for you, it's for us. Some of the male attendees reportedly lied about being non-binary just to get in. But it's interesting that the large majority of the people that actually ended up in the event had name tags with he, him, and have no searchable history of identifying as non-binary. Several tech workers defended the men for trying to capitalize on job opportunities not meant for them, seeing that the entire concept was wrong. Let's be honest, there is no need for a conference just for women because if it was the opposite for men, then it would be sexist. Just because you are a woman doesn't give you the right to talk to a big firm recruiter. Guys work just as hard and they don't get that chance. No searchable history of identifying as non-binary. What do you mean so what, what searchable history? What did have you been identifying every single one of these guys and uh it or not guys, they don't identify as guys. Have you been have you been identifying every single one of these uh, they thems and then going online to search to find out exactly when they started identifying as non-binary? Uh if you are then then uh you're, you're a creep, but also uh, that's highly bigoted because, first of all, if someone decided this morning that they're non-binary, that is a totally valid identity. And also, there's no rules in the, the non-binary rule book, last I checked, that says that if you're non-binary, you have to go by they, them pronouns. You go by he, him pronouns. You could, go, you could go by any pronoun. You could use no pronouns. You could make up a pronoun. These are the rules. The rules are that there are no rules. Um, and we'll talk more about that in a second, but we also uh, we should also note that the, uh, I think it's, the, the, the title is Chief Impact Officer, I believe. A guy named Colin, Colin White uh, was, was at the event, and, and he actually, at some point, the, 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 the invasion of non-binary men got to a point where it was a real crisis at the event. So the Chief Impact Officer stood up and called out the men from the stage. Let's watch some of that. This is supposed to be a joyous event that centers around you. Yesterday it became clear that there are a far greater number of cisgender men attending the event anticipated. Simply put, some of you lied about your gender identity when you registered. And as evidence of the stacks and stacks of resumes you were passing out, you did so because you thought that you could come here and take space. We need male allies. We need men who want to celebrate women, who want to work with and for women. And so, and so we welcome men in this space, but to learn and support and improve. Let's pause it. Needless to say, um, I am, well, first of all, I am deeply inspired um, by what these heroic non-binary men have done, breaking down barriers, crashing through glass ceilings, and, um, and to see the bigotry that they encountered, to be called out from the stage 
And when I think about how deeply otherizing and marginalizing it must have been for them, uh, it, it, it just, it makes me furious. It makes me furious to see that. Uh, and listen, you know, they have the left over a barrel on this one. There's, there's, there's really nothing you can say. You, you invented this non-binary idea. You intentionally made it incoherent, ambiguous, totally impossible to define, arbitrary. Um, you're the ones who declared that being non-binary or being trans carries with it no standards or, or requirements of any kind. Uh, you certainly can't make determinations about what, who someone is and what their identity is just by looking at them. You said, if you say that you're non-binary, then you are, and that's it. Uh, what, what does it mean to be non-binary? Like, to look at someone and say, well, I don't, th- I don't think they're really non-binary. What do you mean, really non-binary? It's, it literally is nothing. It's just, it's, just a, it's just a phrase that you use. That's the rule that you set up. So it makes no sense for you to uh, sit there and say that these men aren't non-binary or, or aren't presenting themselves as non-binary. That's my favorite thing about this is that they're, 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 getting, they're getting blamed for not presenting. What do you mean presenting yourself? And you have no right to say that. Like, according to you, according to you, you have no right to tell anyone that they, they, that they are or are not non-binary. How dare you? How dare you? I say again, how dare you marginalize these non-binary Americans who are trying to get jobs in tech? Let me ask you this. How many tech CEOs are non-binary? I mean, there's probably a lot at this point, to be fair, but, but you know, it, not, not enough, not nearly enough. And so these brave souls show up to this conference living their truth. For many of them, you know what? It probably is the first time that they live their truth openly. You couldn't find a searchable history of them being non-binary? You know what? It, it probably is true. All of these uh, former men all together decided in that moment that they were going to announce themselves to the world in their true non-binary form at a, at, a, at a career conference. Think about the courage that required. And, and, and they do that, and then this is the response that they get from these bigoted liberal women. I am shocked. I am appalled. Um. But all I can say to these men is, uh, is, is or, or former men, or whatever they want to be called. You know what? Here's the thing. They, it's possible that they still identify as men, that they still go by he, him pronouns. They still dress like men. Everything is the same. Like, everything is the same. And yet they, they are also non-binary. That, that's, that's valid. Um, so to these men, if that's what they identify as, um, I can only just extend my, my heartfelt um, admiration. And, and I also uh, very much encourage um, other men who randomly identify as non-binary to invade um, any conference you know, like this, um, uh, giving the left a chance to you know, experience experience the full implications of their own ideology. I think it's a, it's a good opportunity. It's an opportunity for them to experience. And you know something too? 
many of these women at this conference, for, for, the, for the first time in years, they, they suddenly discovered what the word woman means. And so maybe that is the great service that these men or former men uh, provided to these women. Just by showing up, by simply showing up, all of these liberal women in tech all together discovered what the word woman means. Very brave, very brave. Okay, uh, NBC News, speaking of brave, they've, uh, they've been doing a series of reports about um, slavery, which I'm not sure if you ever heard about uh, slavery, but that was a thing that happened in this country a long time ago. And NBC News has decided that now's the time that they really need to do a, a deep dive exploration of slavery and who is, uh, who is descended from slaves and who's descended from slave owners. And their most recent report on this topic has gotten uh, a lot of attention, most, most of it negative. Let's watch some of this. We have a follow-up tonight to a story we first brought you over the summer. In June, Reuters revealed that many of America's political leaders are descended from slaveholders. Tonight, Blaine Alexander brings us more with a woman stunned to learn the history one of those lawmakers has with her own family. In the sprawling fields of rural Tennessee, where thousands of black Americans were once enslaved, Lucretia Johnson Flash feels living history. My people are buried here. As head of diversity and inclusion at a college, she has spent years working against slavery's lasting impact. Today, a typical white family in the U.S. is eight times wealthier than a typical black family. The dynamics are still very much present with us. A recent investigation by Reuters found five living U.S. presidents and at least 100 members of the last Congress are all direct descendants of slaveholders. What does that say to you about the legacy of slavery in this country? It says that power is passed down intergenerationally. It's not to demonize anyone for the past, but things get passed down. Through the Reuters investigation, Lucretia discovered her ancestors were enslaved by families whose direct descendant is Republican Congressman Brett Guthrie of Kentucky. NBC News made repeated attempts to speak with the congressman. He did not respond. <laughs> okay, pause for a second. Legacy. NBC News made repeated attempts to, to talk to the congressman about uh, a, a distant relative who lived 200 years ago and owned slaves. And shockingly, this congressman was, was not, uh, didn't, didn't, didn't think that was an urgent matter that needed to be addressed. I don't know anything about this guy, this congressman. Um, but I can't imagine that uh, even for politicians, they've got plenty of other things going on in their lives that are more important than that. Um, and I also think it's it, it, just, to, just to rewind, watch a little bit more of this for whatever reason, but uh, just to rewind a little bit. You know, we're being told that, well, why is, like, why is this important? Why do we need to still be talking about slavery uh, 150, 200 years later? You know, something that happened, an evil from centuries ago. Why do we need to talk about it now? And she says it's because of um, power, power being passed down through the generations, which even if that is true, right, even if it's true that you can look at some people today and where they are today, and, uh, tr and, and, you know, trace it back to slavery. And if you were to rewind the clock and if, they, if their ancestors were never enslaved, they'd be in a different position. As I've talked about before, th that doesn't necessarily mean they'd be in a better position. But yeah, if you were to change anything that far back in the past, it's going to change where you are today. It also might mean that you, you don't even exist today, as we've discussed. Um, but fine, 
accounting for all of that, and even if it's true that that um, someone, and there's no way to know this, but you take this woman in, in particular, descendant of slaves from generations and generations ago, if it's true that somehow her her life today is is worse than it would have been had her ancestors never been enslaved, if it's true that she somehow in some way is suffering some kind of disadvantage that she would not have suffered had her ancestors never been enslaved, there's no way to know that. There's no way to declare that. You can't possibly say that that's true. But I, I just for the sake of argument, let's accept it. Um, you still have the question of how does it benefit you or anyone to dwell on that fact today? You go back, you know, if things were different 150 years ago, my life would be better. That's an insane statement. You can't possibly know that. But okay, maybe it's true. Ha, ha, okay, well, just, all right. Like the, the most we can do with a statement like that is say, okay, okay, all right, now let's move on. It's like, we can't do anything about it. We can't do anything about it. It already happened a long time ago, and it stopped happening a long time ago. We can do absolutely nothing about it now. So the only thing that you can do is, is, is live your life and move forward or sit around in a state of paralysis whining about uh, forms of persecution that you never even suffered. I think it's funny they put up on the screen there um, the wealth, uh, what was it, the wealth gap between, you know, um, white Americans and black Americans. You know, they, but they only show white, white white Americans and black Americans. You know, they, they don't. It's it's sort of conspicuous that they don't put other um, other groups up there to because if they were, if they were to do that, they would say, yeah, well, white Americans on average are this much wealthier than black Americans on average. But you know who's at the top of that financial uh, socioeconomic pecking order? Asians. The Asian Americans are at, are at the very top. And if everything is explained by the legacy of slavery, how does that fit in? And they always leave the Asians out of the conversation because it doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't fit in with their equation. Especially when you consider that Asians also have a claim to uh, forms of histor- historical persecution. There were Asians uh, much more recently than slavery era getting rounded up in internment camps. And yet they are, as a group, succeeding enormously and succeeding even more than white Americans are. And why is that? Well, it's very simple. Because their divorce rates are relatively low. Their out-of-wedlock birth rate is relatively low. I'll say comparatively low. These rates are comparatively low. And their families stick together, for the most part, and they value education. That's it. I mean, there are other things too, but that, that's pretty much it. Parent, they get married, then they have babies, they stay married, and they make sure that their kids get educated. That's it. That is the whole equation, right? Um, to uh, as as a demographic group, if you want your demographic group to be to be uh, you know collectively successful and to climb the ladder, that's how you do it. That's it. Wait till you're married to have babies. Stay married once you have babies. 
and make sure your kids get educated. That's it. If you do that, you're going to succeed collectively. If you don't do that, you're going to fail. And there's no reason why um, a, 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 a history of slavery 150, 200 years ago would prevent you today. Oh, my ancestors were, were enslaved in the year 1847. So therefore, um, I have to make babies out of wedlock and uh, not get married. And you know What? My ancestors were enslaved in 1847. So therefore, I have to make self-destructive decisions today. That's your choice. It's very simple. The path to uh, collective success is, it turns out, uh, very, very simple. Okay, one other brief thing I want to mention before we get to uh, the next segment. Here's a story from the New York Post that has also gotten some attention uh, this week. New research out of the uh, U.S. and London shows that Shouting at children can be just as harmful to them as sexual or physical abuse. The study commissioned by the UK charity Words Matter was published this month in the journal Child Abuse and Neglect. It calls for childhood verbal abuse, CVA, to be officially recognized as a form of maltreatment. In making this determination, researchers from Wingate University in North Carolina and University College London analyzed 149 quantitative and 17 qualitative studies examining CVA. Uh, study authors noted, found that the definitional themes of abuse included negative speech volume, tone, and speech content, and their immediate impact. And so this is what these uh, psychologists and, and you know, sociologists, this is who, who, who really have been just, th- this whole industry has been an absolute blight on mankind. Um, and here's yet another example where these geniuses are telling us that using a negative speech tone, what's a negative speech tone? It's, it's you know, being, being stern, being stern with your child, like speaking to your child in a way that communicates that you are upset about something. Negative speech tone. So they're not even just talking about like full on top of your lungs, screaming at a kid right in their face. Um, I think most people acknowledge that that is overboard. They're not just saying that. They're saying a, a, a negative tone. And not only are they are they claiming that this is a form of abuse, but that it has the same effect on a child as being molested, is what they're saying. And I can only imagine, like, the only reason why you would make an insane claim like this is if you are trying to minimize, greatly minimize, um, the harm and evil of child sexual abuse. That, that, is, that is all that they are. If they're accomplishing anything here, that is it. Um, whether that's the uh, underlying motivation, I have no idea with these people. But that's the effect. You know, and, we, and we find this across the cultures, like this, this sort of like leveling out of everything. And... Um, we're taking all forms of evil and even things that are not evil. U- using a negative speech tone with a child is not evil. But taking all like negative things and just putting them in the same basket as if there are no uh, gradations, as if there are no, there, there are no degrees to this. And so now they're at the point of claiming that, yeah, a, a negative speech tone is, is you know, r- results in the same trauma 
as molesting a child, which I mean, I don't think I need to explain why that is like, if you don't intuitively recognize why that is completely crazy, then there's probably nothing I can say that would, uh, that would convince you otherwise. But I think most people intuitively recognize that. Um, but, you know, even putting aside, so, so the, the, the comparison to child molestation is just absolutely nuts. If we, were, if we were to somehow carve that out and put that to the side for a moment, um, you know, the rest of this is, some, is, is it's in line with stuff that we've, we've heard before. And this increasingly sort of like uh, common uh, claim about parenting which is, this, is what, this is what the parenting experts say now. And the, so, you know, the, 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 the psychological, so-called psychological experts, this is what they tell us, that um, yelling at a, a kid is abusive. You never want to do that. Using negative tones with a child is abusive. Never want to do that. Of course, they've long ago said that any form of spanking whatsoever in any context, always abusive. They even say now that uh, timeout, putting a kid in a timeout is abusive too. Which, if you've already accepted everything else they've said, that kind of makes sense. Like, if you can't even use a negative tone with a child, then yeah, putting it in a timeout is like a form of false imprisonment. Right? It's, like, it's like kidnapping or something. Um, and you, you see all this, and, and you might start to think, like, well, what, how am I, what form of discipline can I use now? Is it, what, what, if a child is misbehaving, how am I supposed to convey that to the child? Um, how do you instill any form of discipline whatsoever as these people, as the experts have come along one by one, it started with spanking and then just one by one, everything that a parent might do, everything that a normal parent might do to try to discipline their child and to try to communicate to a child that certain behavior is unacceptable, it's dangerous, it's disrespectful, whatever it is. They've got one by one, the experts have come along and said, nope, can't do that, nope, not that, nope, not that, not that, not that, not that. And then you're left, they will, okay, what's left? How am I supposed to instill any kind of discipline? And the answers for these so-called experts, they don't, the answer is nothing. Don't, don't, they don't want you to discipline your child. They don't want you to parent your child is the point. For these experts, they, they don't want you to do anything. They just want you to be a lump on a log. And your, your, your only function is just to be there, provide the, the uh, roof over the head, give them food. And even like the type of food, they'll tell you what type. Um, that's all you're there. To, and all the rest of it, the moral formation, any kind of, any, whatever form of disciplining, leave that up to them. They'll do the rest. That's what they want. Um, and you know, I, I worry about this for, because for someone like, it doesn't matter to me. I just ignore these people, but I think for a lot of uh, younger people, for young parents, new parents, uh, younger people who are not parents yet, and they see all of this and it just may, it's, it, it, you know, especially for young people who are not parents yet, they see this and it, and it dissuades them from ever becoming parents. Because they look at this and they say, oh my gosh, like no matter what I do, I'm going to destroy my child. Anything I do apparently is going to traumatize my kid. If I use the wrong tone, when I'm disciplining them, it will, it, it will cause potentially lifelong trauma. And I think a lot of younger people say that and say, it's, I, don't even want, I can't do it. I, I, I can't. I don't know. Apparently you have to be some sort of highly trained genius to parent. 
And you know what? That is also the objective, too. That, that Ultimately, that's the real objective, is to communicate to people that, you know what, parenting, don't even do it. Don't even try. That's what they're getting to. Let's get to, was Walsh wrong? Well, it's fall, which uh, means cozy nights in with my family. Thanks to my friends at Tommy John, my loungewear for a night in has the perfect blend of comfort and breathability. Their loungewear has a level of softness like I've never felt before. Their incredibly soft loungewear is designed to envelop you in a world of pure luxury. When you wear Tommy John, you're so much more comfortable than, uh, than that you can do uh, everything better. Even their underwear has dozens of comfort innovations like breathable, lightweight, moisture-wicking fabric with four times the stretch of uh, competing brands that you can keep you uh, seven degrees cooler than cotton. Every purchase is backed by Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or it's free guarantee. You get 20% off your first order right now at tommyjohn.com Walsh. That's 20% off at tommyjohn.com Walsh. See site for details. OJ says, Matt really out here telling people to assume black men are murderers. Scott McKinney says, Matt Walsh is working hard to move the Overton window on racial stereotyping. He wants very much for white people to stereotype black men as dangerous and pretends that fear of black people is reasonable and warranted. This is open and clear racism and race hatred. Uh, Californian in AR says, it's true though, I've, I've stereotyped you as a stupid bigot, therefore I don't listen to you and live my life without your influence. It's great. And uh, follow me to the truth says, what would you do if you pulled up to a gas station and there were white people wearing hoodies? What about white people with neck tattoos? White people with pink or purple hair? I think the middle-aged black woman was a poor alternative. You could have made a better alternative case. Okay. So I'm going to respond to all these, but let me start with uh, this last comment. Would I have stopped at the gas station um, at night with my kids in the car if there were two white guys with neck tattoos hanging weirdly around uh, off to the side, not pumping gas? No, definitely not. Um, I wouldn't have. Uh, what if they had hoodies? I don't know. I mean, I, it kind of depends. What if they had pink or purple hair? I mean, I, no, I, I wouldn't worry. You know, the white person with pink or purple hair, I don't worry for my own safety around those sorts of people. Um, I wouldn't hire them as babysitters. That's for sure. And actually, that's another great example of when a rational person will make stereotypical judgments about people based mostly on appearance. If you're hiring somebody to watch your kids, you know, so you can go out on a date night or something with your spouse, you would probably never, should never, hire a man, first of all, of any race, um, unless this is like uh, grandpa or someone close to you who you really know and trust. Uh, but I'm talking about you're going out to hire strangers, people often do, and they're hiring babysitters, you're going through some kind of service or something like that. Um, you're not going to hire a man, uh, uh, I would hope. You're not going to hire anybody with exotically dyed hair, probably. You're only hiring a woman, and you're going to be very particular and judgmental of the woman's appearance and demeanor. Because this is someone you're leaving your kids with, and you don't have a lot of information about them, ultimately. Um, and so you got to make judgment calls based on appearance. And, uh, and, and, and so you might make, you know, you might make a, a judgment call or an assumption or something, that ends up being incorrect about that particular person, but it doesn't matter because it's, it's not about it's not about them specifically. It's just about assessing risk levels. So this is why, again, you know, using the example, you're going through some kind of babysitter service to hire a stranger, and you see uh, some I don't know 22 year old guy is one of the 
potential babysitters with a profile on the site, I think you'd be crazy to, to, to hire the 22-year-old guy to come watch your kids, 22-year-old strange man to come watch your kids. And, and so if I see that profile, I'm not going to hire that person. Does that mean, is it like definitely true that that person is a, is a child abuser of some kind? Of course not. There's a very good chance that they aren't. In fact, they, they almost certainly aren't. Like it's, you know, just, just statistically. But I'm, I'm assessing risk. And the risk level with that man is going to be higher than it is for a, a random woman. Now, does race factor into the kind of judgment calls we make um, when we're assessing risk and when we have no other information? Well, yeah, because it's something we observe. It's part of the overall picture. And so when you're looking at someone, you're, you're taking everything about them into account. So you... and. Most of this happens very quickly. It's like it's unconscious. It's it's uh, or at least it's it's instinctive. It's gut level, and you're just you see someone and you're taking everything about them. You notice everything about them, and it all kind of filters through um, the risk assessing process. So, if you're walking alone at night and you see a young black male up ahead standing on a street corner, um, you are going to be more wary than if you see a middle-aged white woman in yoga pants jogging by, okay? And that's because middle-aged white women are responsible for basically none of the violent crime in the country. Basically none. Like, there's probably never been a case in history where a person was was uh, mugged uh, on a street corner by, you know, a, a middle-aged, by a 37-year-old white woman. It's probably never happened. And I know someone's going to go on Google and find the one case. Oh, you know, back, back in 1987, there was a 37-year-old woman named Kelly who became a gang leader in Detroit. Like, you might be able to find the rank, but cases like that are totally anomalous. Um, it basically never happens. It's, it's not a concern that, that enters your head. On the other hand, young black males are responsible for a vastly disproportionate amount of violent crime. A young black male is a lot more likely to mug you and rob you than, than a middle-aged white female or really anyone of any other demographic group. That's just a fact. It, it, it just is. It's just a simple statistical reality. And there's no, you can deny it. This is what we do. We deny things that we, every person who denies it knows, we all know, so we're all talking to each other. And there, and there are people in the conversation denying things, even though we're looking at each other. You and I both know that what you're denying is actually true. So we all know that. Um, and in these kinds of situations, your, your level of wariness, if you're a rational person, is going to fluctuate depending on the level of actual risk. It also factors, again, context matters. Okay? Um, young black male in a hoodie standing on a street corner at night alone, you're going to assess that differently than if you see uh, a black male walking by you in a suit. You know, it's all of these things you're, you're taking into account and you're, you have a gut level assessment of it. And uh, again, we all know that's true. Uh, some of these commenters and others are pretending, you know, they're pretending that if they saw a young black male and a white woman, that they would have, that there would be equal levels of concern or that there should be. But if you're making that claim, you're either lying, you are just lying, and we all know you're lying. Or you are suicidally naive and stupid, 
And there's a good chance you will end up like Ryan Carson, dead on a sidewalk somewhere. So those are the two options. I think the better option is just for us all to acknowledge reality, because it is what it is. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to be upset about it. It just is. It's no secret that we are all loving the GenuCell Dark Spot Corrector here. It's making everyone around me have faces I can stand to look at just barely. You might be asking, what does this product even do? Well, if, uh, if you have sunspots, dark spot, uh, discoloration, dry skin, whatever it is, the GenuCell Dark Spot Corrector will help these blemishes disappear in front of your very eyes. Kimberly from Youngstown, Ohio. Uh, I was just talking to her and she said, my appearance has improved so much since using GenuCell on my face. I love all my GenuCell products and my skin looks younger. Now, it's your turn to feel like Kimberly, but this sale is ending very soon, so you got to take advantage now of GenuCell's most popular package, which includes the Dark Spot Corrector. This package also includes uh, the the classic GenuCell bags and puffiness treatment for immediate effects. You'll get all those products for almost 70% off. GenuCell is so confident in their products that you can try them for yourself completely risk-free. If you don't see results in one day, you'll get your money back. It's simple. Go to GenuCell.com slash Walsh and start looking years, even decades younger. Say hello to the best skin you've ever had at GenuCell.com slash Walsh. That's GenuCell.com slash Walsh. Also, who doesn't love a good Columbus Day sale? Well, you know, some folks these days, they don't even want you to celebrate Columbus Day, but at Jeremy's Razors, we want you to discover the new world of woke-free shaving. Get 20% off select Jeremy's Razors products and bundles, including the Precision 5 Starter Kit, the Founders Kit, the Beard Kit, the skincare Bundle, and more. Be a pioneer for a better shave and better hygiene. Don't wait. Make the switch today. Get yours at jeremysrazors.com. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. Today for our daily cancellation, we turn to the actress Carrie Washington, who has published an, ex- published, uh, an excerpt from her upcoming memoir in Time magazine. And as you've uh, noticed, the bar for memoirs has been severely lowered in recent years. It used to be that there were two basic requirements for writing a memoir. First, you have to have led an incredibly interesting life to write a memoir. And second, you have to be a great writer. Memoirs are things that exist for fascinating writers who've lived fascinating lives. And there are very few people who fall into either category and fewer still who fall into both categories. That's the point. It's a very rare person who is worthy of a memoir. But that's all changed. And in fact, it's been flipped completely on its head. And now in most cases, memoirs are written only by the worst writers who have lived the most boring lives. They're written by someone like Kerry Washington, a run-of-the-mill actress who starred in a bunch of mediocre network TV shows. Um, how can she justify a memoir? What can she possibly have to say about her life that's worthy of a memoir? What important experiences has she had? Well, in her Time Magazine piece, she tells us about one. Uh, she had an abortion. So she may not have done anything interesting or incredibly instructive with her life uh, or constructive, but she did kill her baby. And uh, that story really needs to be told, she thinks. So reading out says, in my late 20s, I made the difficult and very private decision to have an abortion. About a decade later, I played a character that was the first woman to be shown undergoing an abortion procedure on network television. As women, it is our right to choose what happens to our bodies, our lives, and our futures. It's also up to us to decide when, how, and with whom we share our stories. The reality is that abortion is a very real and normal part of women's lives. I share the story of my abortion procedure here because our right to make choices about our bodies and our lives is under attack both culturally and legislatively. This is my story. I am one of many, and we will not be silenced. Now, one thing um, you notice about liberal women is that they never shut up, but they're always claiming that they're being silenced. 
especially when it comes to their abortion stories. Every time a woman come, like this comes out with her, the saga of her abortion, she always has this elaborate, melodramatic wind-up where she insists that it's, it's finally time. It's finally time for women to talk about their abortions. Except that women have been talking about their abortions for decades, okay? We've heard this story over and over and over again. In fact, before we read any more of Kerry Washington's personal and private abortion story, we already know everything it will say because it's always the same script. That's because evil is not very innovative. It tends to repeat itself, right? It's the banality of evil, which is why every woman who has ever bragged about killing her child has sounded exactly like every other woman who has bragged about killing her child. So we don't need to keep reading, uh, but we will. Continuing, it was January in New York City. I'll never forget how cold it was that morning. I was grateful for the need of additional layers, not only to keep me warm, but also to hide and cocoon myself away from the reality of the procedure I was about to undergo. Um, Let's uh, stop there for a moment. Carrie, you say you wanted to hide from the reality of the procedure you were about to undergo. Why? Why would you need to hide from the reality of the procedure? If abortion is a legitimate medical procedure, and if it's not, in fact, the murder of a human child, then why do you need to hide from its reality? You know, if I were to ever write a memoir about my experience getting surgery on my torn Achilles in 2019, which would at least be as interesting as your memoir, I would never say that I wanted to hide from the reality of the procedure. Okay? I would never open it like that. With some, me- It was cold outside. It was dark. Cocooned myself from the reality of my Achilles procedure. I would never say that. Uh, now, I may have gotten a little nervous about getting surgery in general, but there was nothing about the reality of the procedure that I found upsetting or distressing. The reality is that they were going to fix something that was broken. It's a good thing. I was happy they were doing it, ultimately. Um, you were not happy. You were hiding from the reality. Why? What is it about abortion that made you want to hide? If you actually were to explore that question in an honest and introspective way, then your abortion story might have a chance to be the first of its kind to have any value whatsoever. But of course, you don't explore that question. You just, you say, I wanted to hide from the reality. Never explaining why. What is it about the reality that you want to hide from? What's so upsetting about it? Never explain. You skip right over it, and we move on to this. Continuing, I sat in the waiting room and completed the paperwork with false information, a made-up name, a pretend address, a non-existent email, Only the phone number was my own, should the office need to reach me in case of an emergency. Let me stop there again. Um, In what other context can you go in for a surgical procedure and get away with providing completely false information? They never asked for your ID. They never verified anything about your identity. They never even verified your age. So we're constantly told about the invisible hurdles that women have to jump over to obtain abortions. But this makes it clear that the hurdles are significantly lower than they are for any actually legitimate medical procedure. Moving on, it says, when the nurse called my false name, I followed her into a small office. She proceeded to ask me requirements that she was, uh, uh, questions that she was required to ask by the state to help me make sure that this was the right choice for me and my family, quote unquote. My body felt hot with shame. As a teen, I performed with a health education theater company, and I had spent years on the other side of a version of that conversation, asking young people to consider their options and weigh the consequences. I was schooled and schooled others in the ways of prevention and the language of sexual empowerment. But in my own life, I had committed the crime that seemed unimaginable to me back then. I had let the heat of the moment dictate choices that would impact me for a lifetime. 
Why hadn't I protected myself? Why hadn't I the courage to create boundaries around my womb? Why had I silenced the preferences, in the, in the, my preferences, in the name of people-pleasing? This all could have been avoided. If I had spoken up for myself in that moment, I wouldn't have found myself in that office. But there I was, surrendering my insides to a surgical vacuum, trying to repair the damage born of my silence and need to be loved. A few points here. Um, first of all, for anyone listening to this, uh, you may have experienced challenges in your life. You may have suffered in many ways. But look on the bright side. At least you were never subjected to performances by Kerry Washington's Health Education Theater Company. So however bad you think it, 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 it may be in your life, it could be worse. There are people, apparently, years ago, who were sitting in audiences watching a health education theater company starring Kerry Washington. Second, notice the passive tone that Kerry adopts here. She chose to have sex outside of marriage at a time when she felt she was unprepared to have children, and it led to predictable results. In fact, her sexual experience had the same result that literally billions and billions of other sexual experiences have had. A man and a woman had sex and they made a baby. It is a story as old as humanity itself. It has played out tens of billions of times across the world and through history. Yet Carrie Washington presents herself as perplexed. I had sex with a man, I became pregnant. I, how could this have happened? How could this have happened? Well, I, I could tell you how it happened. I mean, you're the one that was in a health education theater company. I think you should probably know. But it's not really her fault, she informs us. She, she was just people-pleasing by having sex with the guy. She did it for, her, her, for his sake, really. Her only mistake was not establishing boundaries, which is a not-so-subtle way of essentially putting all the blame on the man because she only had sex for his sake. This was, this was about pleasing him. He was crossing boundaries. The sex was something that was happening to her. And if she's to blame for anything, it's for not speaking up for herself. Right. Reading a little more, she says, Later, as I lay on the medical bed with my feet in stirrups, the doctor described her plans for the termination, the instrument she would be using, and what it might feel like at different stages along the way. I had been to several gynecological, uh, gynecological appointments through, through the years, but never one so transactional. Today, I had come to this office for a particular result and required a definitive outcome. When I left, I would, have, I would be a changed woman without the burden of new life, but perhaps with a bit more time to understand and define my own. As the doctor opened my cervix and inserted the thin vacuum tube, the nurse looked down at me, smiled, and very gently said, do you know who you look like? I think she was trying to comfort me, to tell me that even though uh, this moment was incredibly difficult, she could see the beauty in me, could see that I reminded her of a movie star. She said my real name. I could hear it under the muffled sound of the water in which I was drowning. Carrie Washington. It was my name, but the version she was calling out had nothing to do with me. And so in that moment, I didn't know who I was. Okay. Um, we, we probably read enough at this point. Two other quick points, though. First, as predicted, the writing here is just absolutely atrocious. I could hear it under the muffled sound of the water in which I was drowning. Never mind that, again, abortion is supposedly a legitimate and positive medical procedure, and yet she compares it to drowning. Okay, you would never describe any other medical procedure that way. But that aside, this is just tremendously awful writing. She is laboring to make the whole experience sound profound and poetic and beautiful, but she, is, she, is, she is, uh, finds herself hamstrung by the fact that she is a shallow, midwit actress who has never had a profound thought in her entire life. And the result is a sentence like, 
I could hear it under the muffled sound of the water in which I was drowning, which is equal parts clunky and cliched. It sounds like something you'd read in a 10th grader's creative writing assignment. And by the way, just this is a pet peeve, but okay, you can actually end a sentence with a preposition. Nobody in real life would ever say the phrase, the water in which I was drowning. You didn't rescue me from the water in which I was drowning. You would, you would just say, the water I was drowning in. That's what you would say. Now, your public school teacher told you that there's some ironclad grammar rule forbidding you from ever ending a sentence with a preposition, but that was just one of the many things your public school teacher lied to you about, okay? You could end a sentence with a preposition. If, someone, if you see someone with, with uh, earbuds in, you, you don't have to ask them, to what music are you listening what are you listening to? You don't have to speak like Yoda, okay? That's not the correct grammar. Uh, that's not. That's incorrect grammar. Anyway, more importantly, we have this sentence, where she says, when I left, I'd be a changed woman without the burden of new life, but perhaps with a bit more time to understand and define my own. And that's the whole story right there. I mean, that, that, that's, that's the part that really matters. Because this is what abortion is in the, in the vast majority of instances. Kerry Washington was not a poor, desperate woman getting an abortion because she felt she had no choice. Now, it still would not have been justified even in that case, but that is not the case here. She simply just didn't want to deal with a baby. She didn't feel like having a baby, so she's killing it. She even acknowledges that the life in her womb is, in fact, life, but it's a life that burdens her, inconveniences her, interferes with her lifestyle. Is she killing her child so that she doesn't end up homeless or, or you know, starve to death? Which still would not be a justified reason for killing your child because nothing could ever justify killing a child. Nothing. But no, that's not even why she's doing it. In her words, she, she just wants to have more time to understand and define her own life. So she is willfully and admittedly destroying human life for the most frivolous reason imaginable. She's killing her own child, and all that she can offer to defend that decision is some meaningless self-actualization jargon. In other words, she is simply a terrible human being. That's the real moral of the story. It's the one thing we learn from her otherwise pointless and dull memoir. And it's why Kerry Washington is today canceled. That'll do it for the show today and this week. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week. Godspeed. Godspeed.